of Jesus' execution, because that's what this psalm is all about. If you follow your bulletin outline, the first point I'm making is that Jesus was hunted down and treed like some animal. You will recognize immediately that the first words of this psalm were spoken by none other than Jesus himself in the hour of his agony on the cross. Mark tells us at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, verse 34. This statement, along with other references to the crucifixion in this psalm, the mocking mentioned in verse 7, the actual words of the mockers, verse 8, Jesus' insatiable thirst, verse 15, his pierced hands and feet, the fact that the soldiers were gambling over his garments, and on and on through this psalm, they all join together in one chorus to indicate that Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. It is a picture, it is a snapshot of the crucifixion as applied to Jesus, David's heir, and David's Lord. But this cry from the cross does not tell us how Jesus came to be in such a deadly position. How did this friend of sinners become such a hated and despised enemy of the very people that he came to save? What are the circumstances which resulted in Jesus being nailed to a tree like some criminal of the state? Well, David, who is the author of this ode, gives us a clue in the title of this psalm. We do not normally pay attention to the labels musicians or editors place on their works. But as we just experienced last Lord's Day with Music Night, the titles of the hymns help to catalog them according to content, according to theme. And if you're searching the index and you're looking for a particular hymn, the titles are very helpful. David's title here, while not obvious, is equally helpful. It reads, For the director of music... To the tune of Do, D-O-E, of the morning. Now the little phrase, to the tune of, is not necessarily there. That's an interpretation. But it should read like this. For the director of music, Do of the morning. Julie Andrews as Mariga in the film, The Sound of Music, does something very similar as she attempts to teach the children of the Von Trapp family how to sing. Do a deer, a female deer, ray a drop of golden sun. And she's dealing with all of the notes on the scale, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, and so forth. Well, David's instruction here is not so joy joyful, for in describing the music for his psalm, 
he tells us that it is the tune of the doe of the morning. Yes, doe, a female deer, but there are the, similar, the similarities end to Rogers and Hammerstein's Sound of Music. David is referencing a hunt, a planned, organized, well-orchestrated field event in which multiple hunters are engaged in tracking down and killing a wild animal, which by its description is harmless and defenseless. Oh yeah, so we've all read or heard of a deer crashing into a storefront causing a lot of damage to uh, patrons and merchandise alike. We would not put deer into the same category as Dorothy's apprehensions in The Wizard of Oz when she worries about the wild animals in the forest. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. You don't see her listening doe there or deer there. Now we do have such dangerous types of animals in this psalm. And they are in stark contrast to this one who is portrayed as the doe of the morning. The main player in this ode, Jesus, explains how he finds himself on a tree in a dying state of execution. Look at verse 12. Many bulls Surround me, strong bulls of Bashan, encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Deuteronomy 13 verse 14 describes the pasture land where these bulls were bred as one of honey and the fruit of the field and curds and milk and the finest kernels of wheat, which would account... For the bulls of Bashan being of such great size and strength. These are like the bulls which run yearly in Pamplona, Spain. Every year people run in an enclosed corridor towards the arena with the bulls in hot pursuit. And every year those people are gored, or some of them are, and trampled by these beasts. And in our psalm, the bulls have encircled Jesus. They have Pend him in. He is trapped. Additionally, the lions, known for tearing their prey, verse 12, have opened their mouths wide against Christ. And fear has so gripped his soul. He says in verse 14, I am poured out like water. My heart turns to wax. It has melted within me. In Psalm 104, verse 20 and following, the author says of God, you bring darkness and it becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lion roars for their prey. The sun rises and they steal away and they return and lie down in their dens. We recall the terror of the Colosseum in Rome where for entertainment Christians were herded into the arena only to discover that lions were let loose to devour them. And this means, if we look again at our psalm, 
that there were bulls of the daylight and lions who are nocturnal in their hunt. And so there was no rest from being hunted. Both day and night, Jesus was in danger from these people who acted like wild beasts, scheming, plotting, stalking, hemming him in for the kill. Yes, we're going to get him. Finally, we're going to get him. Nor was this all. In verse 20, Jesus pleads to God for deliverance from the power of the dogs, from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. King James Version says unicorns. They really don't know what beast this was. But the best they can come up with from the Hebrew is wild oxen. It's also translated in Psalm 29, verse 6. Now as you read this word, dogs, dogs, D-O-G-S, do not think of that domesticated French poodle or that lowly basset hound. The dogs of these eastern countries are more like the wild dingoes of Australia or the hyenas of Africa. They hunt in packs. So where one lacks both boldness and strength, in the pack they have strength and they have courage. The pack supplies what one would lack. We have a graphic description of these wild dogs in action in the account of wicked Jezebel who in hatred of God pursued Elijah, God's prophet, with a full intent to kill him. But Elijah was protected by God and Jezebel was thrown out of her window by loyalists loyalists to the new king Jehu. And Elijah's prophecy came true about her. Concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There never was a man as like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. 1 Kings 21, verse 23 through 25. This is what is meant by the dogs in our text. So what we have here is that every one of these animals mentioned in our psalm, bulls from Bashan, lions of the forest that prowl about at night, wild oxen with their horns, wild dogs with their fangs and tearing teeth, some daytime hunters, others nighttime hunters, but all of them in concert and circling, verse 12, then tightening the circle on this defenseless doe until there is no escape. And so plotting and conniving and scheming and lying enemies of Christ continued until like a raccoon treed by the hounds, he there pleads his case, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from the words of my groaning? Now, when we read these words, and it does teach us that God abandoned Christ. 
Our second point is that he was deserted in his humanity by God. In his humanity. There's an advertisement on TV for Wounded Warrior Project, which aids servicemen and women who have returned home from war, injured with various degrees of disability and suffering. And in one of the ads, the wife of such a warrior states something to the effect that the worst thing that she and her family had experienced was the feeling of being all alone. All alone. And we want to question that. We say, well, no, wait a minute. Worse than the inability to walk? Worse than the inability to talk? Worse than the inability to feed yourself and clothe yourself? And the answer comes back, yes, 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 a hundred times yes. Why is this so? It is so because God has made us a gregarious, sociable, community-oriented people. Of our first parents, we read the Lord, God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2, verse 18. Alone. It's not good to be alone. There's some other things that are not good. Solomon writes, It is not good to punish an innocent man or to flog officials for their integrity. Proverbs 17, 26. And both of these were done to Jesus as attested by Governor Pilate's own conclusion. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. John 19, verse 4. And he did that three times. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Oh, go ahead and crucify him. It doesn't compute. And Solomon says it's not good to punish an innocent man. He writes again, It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the innocent of justice. Proverbs 18, verse 5. But again, Pilate did both when he caved into the accusations of the religious leaders. From then on, we read, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. I mean, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of the preparation for Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest shouted. And we read, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. John 19, <clears throat> verses 12 through 16. This tells us 
there will be no reprieve from the governor. No reprieve. Instead, there is a washing of his hands of the whole matter. What is more, the disciples, in fear for their own personal safety, have all fled to the hills except for the apostle John. But even John cannot console or help Jesus now. Jesus is led out of Jerusalem carrying his own cross and then nailed to the tree like some common criminal. And there is no one to come to his aid. Surely God the Father will come to his aid, we think. Jesus is his beloved son. And in Jesus' own teaching, he says, Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Matthew 7, verse 9 through 11. Okay, that being so, what do we have in our text? Verse 2. Oh my God. I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Verse 10. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. But from verse 1 we learn that though there is no one to help, God has not come near to help either. Instead, God has forsaken Jesus. Jesus prays day and night. He groans and is in pain, verse 1. He cries out, but there's no answer, verse 2. God is far from saving him, verse 1. How are we to understand all of this? Pleas of Jesus, the lack of response by God the Father, the refusal by God to come to the rescue of his Son. God, as it were, abandoning Jesus to the intents of wicked men. We are to understand it this way. All of this refers to Jesus in his humanity. To Jesus as he became the sin bearer for his people. And paid their debt to God's law. Well, what does God's law require of sinners? God answers, for every living soul belongs to me. The Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. And the soul who sins is the one that will die. Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Unless there be some doubt as to the condition of our personal position before God, we are reminded by the God who knows all things. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, verse 10 through 12, speaking of humanity in general. Well, there's one exception, and that is one exception to the sweeping universal statements that Jesus 
and it is Jesus of whom the writer of Hebrews writes, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 7, verse 26 and 27. Paul words it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2. If Jesus is to be our representative for sin before the bar of God's justice, God cannot, let me say it strongly, God cannot let him off the hook because Jesus is his son. He can't do it. No, God must treat him as we sinners would deserve were we on trial. As if we were on the cross. Substitution. And that's the reason for God forsaking Jesus in this hour of trial. He was forsaking me, the sinner. You, the sinner. And every other sinner who in faith has looked to Jesus to be his representative for pain and condemnation. Concerning sin. Jesus deserted in his humanity as he took the penalty for his people's sin. But there's one dimension in which Jesus was not abandoned by God. And that is in his deity. In his union with God the Father by nature. Just hours before his arrest, Jesus told his disciples, the time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You, you my disciples, you will leave me all alone. Notice the next phrase. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 32 and 33. You see, Jesus did not cease being God when he became a man. And when he was forsaken by the Father, it was only because the Bible teaches of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong, Habakkuk 1, verse 13. And that's exactly what was going on. As Christ became the sin bearer for his people, he was absorbing all of their evil, all of their wickedness. Paul puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, 
verse 20. This is who God the Father saw that day on Gogotha's hill. Not Jesus, his innocent, sinless son. But rather he saw Paul, the sinner, who must die for his sins. And Fred, the sinner, who must be crucified for his sins. And even Mary, his mother, who must die for her sins. And on and on it goes. And if you're a believer, you would have to put your name there on the cross as well. Our Lord explains how he, has, he was viewed by God. Look at verse 6 of our text. I'm a worm, he says. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. What is this? Well, this is the people viewing Jesus as they did the two malefactors accompanying Jesus in crucifixion, one on the left, one on the right. He's just cataloged with the other two. He is the criminal of the state. He is afforded no special grace. He is afforded no preferential treatment. He is a sinner dying a criminal's death. Your crimes and my crimes and all the crimes and all the sins of his people. That's Jesus' treed, nailed to a tree. Forsaken in his humanity, but not in his deity. Now what was the assessment of Jesus concerning his father's action? I'll bet he's very angry with his dad, right? Very upset. He cries to God for help. The heavens seem to be brass. No answer. Look at verse 3. Here's his assessment. He's speaking to God the Father. Yet he says, You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. Psalm 22 Verse 3 through 5. Brethren, can I say it this way, that salvation is not easily won. It's not easily won. The payment for sin is not cheap grace. Paul tells us, you were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. And Peter elaborates on the price saying this, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, without defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. First Peter 1, verse 18 through 20. Our text reveals something of the extreme nature 
of the price Jesus paid. He says in verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Now you see, that's more than being thirsty. This is being parched to the point of dehydration. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, like, like pottery that's baked in a hot oven until all the moisture is cooked out of the clay. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 14 and 15. Verse 16 says, a band of evil men has encircled me. Ah, now we learn it, don't we? Not literal bulls and lions and dogs and wild oxen, but wicked men who had no qualms about driving nails into his hands and feet. Verse 16. It's like ISIS and the Taliban in our day. The more pain and torture they can inflict, the better they like it. And as the hours of crucifixion agonizingly dragged on, people stared and gloated over his naked body, verse 17. And they could count all his bones because his dehydrated skin was like a taut piece of canvas pulled over an aluminum tent frame. And to mock him the more, the soldiers soaked a sponge in vinegar wine. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, we read, but the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he read, receive the drink, Jesus says, it's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, verse 29 and 30. May I say, brethren, this was a costly price of redemption. And far from being angry with God and bitter towards him, Jesus says, verse 20, 20, 22 and following, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. All your descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22, verse 22 through verse 28. Would you have praised God in this way? Had you been treated this way? Now there are two powerful lessons that I want to draw from this text. Number one, 
is that Jesus has sanctified all of our suffering by the hands of evil men. By this I mean the suffering that comes our way because of our relationship to Christ. The world in which we live is full of suffering because of the curse of God on creation for sin. This shall ever be until the day of the new heaven and the new earth. So if you are in a car accident or you contract a disease or if you lose your job or someone you love dies, all of these things are ills resulting from living in a sinful world and that is not what I'm talking about. But if you lose your job because the boss doesn't want a Christian working for him, or if your personal property is vandalized, or your righteous character is slandered because of your faith, that kind of suffering is directly related to your connection with Jesus Christ. Paul experienced the same. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. Now listen to this next phrase. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. Would you ever think that Paul would write something like that? The sufferings of Christ, and we just read about them in Psalm 22. The sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. And he says, just as that happens, so also through Christ our comfort overflows if we are distressed it's for your comfort and salvation if we are comforted it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer and our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings so also you share in our comfort We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships that we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. This is Paul writing about himself. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 10. Peter tells us something similar. He says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure that? (laughs) That's a good question. How is that to your credit? He goes on. But, but, if you suffer for doing good, 
and you endure that, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because, here it is, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 through 24. Two chapters later, Peter writes his conclusion. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to God, their, to, to their faithful creator and continue to do good. 1 Peter 4, verse 16 through 19. So this is a tremendous lesson to learn here. That Christ sanctifies our suffering as his own, by his own uh, suffering. Anytime we suffer for the faith, suffer for Christ. Just the very night of his betrayal, he taught his disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. So you're in good company if the world hates you. They hate you because they hate me. And they hate you because you love me. And you're following me. You're being persecuted for righteousness. So when we go through those kind of sufferings, it is to our credit. We are being commended by God. And then the second lesson that I bring to you is this. The cries of the righteous may experience delay, but they never go ignored by God. How did this psalm begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. But if we stop reading there, we will miss the epilogue. Don't you want to know how the story ends? Can truth be discovered if you only... Learn the beginning, if you only read the beginning of the story, but not the end. Look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. And I ask, how's that going to happen when Jesus' call for help to God has seemingly fallen on deaf ears? How is a crucified Savior to save anyone else? Verse 23, 
For he, God, has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one, me. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. I'm so glad that these words are in our psalm, as well as the first verse of the psalm. What is the upshot of God listening to his son's cry for help? Paul in Acts 13 is preaching. He says, Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. I'm reading scripture. When they had carried him out, all that was written, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, and today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One, see decay. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried with his fathers. His body decayed. I'm reading scripture. But, but, the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from in the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Acts 13, 26 through 41. And that's something miraculous was the resurrection of Christ, our Lord. This means that the resurrection of Jesus vindicates the acceptance of God for his cross work. In other words, God did hear his cry. He did answer his plea. And it is the scoffers and mockers who are put on notice. Look at verse 29. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Oh, I love that. All the scoffers who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Verse 10. Posterity, that is Christ's posterity, 
will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord as are we in this day, part of those future generations. Isaiah, after describing Jesus being cut off from the lands of the li- land of the living, Isaiah 53 verse 8 goes on to say, Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Did God the Father hear Jesus plea? Help me. There's no one to help me. His concluding remarks are, oh yes, God the Father has come to the afflicted one. Resurrection, of course, is the great proof that God heard, brought his son to life, and made him the savior of all those that trust him, and the judge and jury of all those who do not. Which is it for you? Which is it for you this morning? A follower of Christ or a mocker? One that submits to his lordship and authority or one that's always questioning him as though you had to write to put God on trial all over again. May the Lord grant to us a repentant heart this morning, a thankful heart, a believing heart. Jesus said, not all men have faith. Boy, that's true. Because faith, says Paul, is the gift of God. It's not of works. It's not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. May the Lord grant us faith this day. May we rejoice in the crucified, yes, but in the risen Lord and Savior. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. Father, things haven't gotten better in the world of our day from the world of Jesus' day. The mockers and the scoffers, they're still with us. In fact, Peter says that in the final days of Earth's existence, the mockers will be right there again, tooting their negative statements, criticizing God, as it were, trying to put God on trial for what he has done or what he has chosen to do. But we read in our text, that all who go down to the dust will kneel before this Jesus. Those that can't keep themselves alive, they're going to kneel before this King. And I pray for our hearers today that we are those who believe. We are like Paul who says, I've been crucified with Christ. Can we say that? I've been crucified with Christ. I died. I'm not living my own selfish whims any longer. But I'm living the life that God wants me to live. Not perfectly, not sinlessly, not now at least. But the day comes when we will walk with God in perfection. I pray for sinners today, Lord. 
They don't believe in resurrection, but worse than that, they don't believe in anything about Jesus Christ and his deity. They just see him as a man, maybe as a prophet. That's it. They mock and scoff today, just like the people at the foot of the cross. They cry out for Barabbas, a known insurrectionist and a convicted murderer, and call out for him to be released rather than the innocent Son of God in whom there was no guile in his speech, no wickedness in his heart, no evil in his deeds. That's us. That's humanity. <laughs> Preferring evil. Prefer preferring sin. Because we feel comfortable around sinners. But we don't feel comfortable around holy. But Lord, your people strive and want to be like you. May you make us holy. For your honor and your glory and our good we pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal number 228.